You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Jeremiah, chapter 1. My intention today is to begin a a brief survey of... uh, the book of Jeremiah. I know you've been studying, many of you have, Jeremiah in Sunday school, uh, some of you for a few weeks uh, now, and I'm getting a little bit of a a late start in that, but I I think after a few weeks I'll be caught up with you, at least that's the plan. My intent is not to preach every verse of Jeremiah, uh, but to uh, preach a few of the key texts, and so uh, my plan, if the Lord doesn't change that, is, is about seven sermons. Uh, it's, it's good for us to, to look at uh, the Old Testament prophets because I, I think because we rarely do. Um, there are reasons for that. Preaching faithfully from Old Testament, the Old Testament is, is more challenging than preaching from the New Testament and, and preaching from Old Testament prophets may be some of the most challenging uh, of all. Uh, Martin Luther agreed he uh, wrote this many years ago, the prophets have a queer way of talking like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Uh, the, the other challenging thing is not just that, but, but the, the, the odd wordings, if you will, the odd illustrations that that are difficult sometimes to wade through. And, and then that's compounded, if we're honest today, by our lack of knowledge about biblical history and uh, how, how we're not for sure and, and familiar enough with the historical context at the time that it makes it difficult. And, and, and then lastly, the message of divine judgment that often accompanies the, pros- the prophets is not something that's very popular uh, to preach. And, uh, and so for all of those reasons, but, but today, and you know this, you know my conviction that the prophets are a part of the Word of God. And therefore, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, and I remind you of what Jesus said, interestingly, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so our Lord taught his disciples to look to the prophets, uh, to look for him. And so it will do us good to wade into Jeremiah, uh, I, I hope, for a few weeks. Jeremiah chapter 1 is our text today. It begins like this, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Oh, Lord God, 
Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and as we come to uh, Old Testament prophet, Lord, we especially ask for your help and and understanding what is before us today, uh, that we would have open ears and open hearts to receive all that you would say to us from your word. I pray that you would use me today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jeremiah began his ministry around 627 B.C., so that's roughly 627 years before Jesus came. And his ministry began when God's Word came to him and called him, as we have just read. The chapter begins with the words of Jeremiah, and then in verse 2, to whom the Word of the Lord came. And then perhaps more plainly in verse 9, when God tells Jeremiah, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. God is speaking. God's speaking through his servant, Jeremiah. Jeremiah refers to God's word more than any other book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's phrases like this that we encounter throughout the whole book, like this, thus says the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Or that phrase in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, when it says, declares the Lord. You see it there? It occurs 167 times in Jeremiah, accounting for, somebody has done this math, 67% of its use in the whole Old Testament. A repeated 
accusation that is leveled against the people in the book of Jeremiah is that they would not listen to the word of God. This was the fundamental problem in Jeremiah's day. And can I tell you that it's the fundamental problem in our day as well? It wasn't just that the world would not listen or respond to God's word. In Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, it was God's people who wouldn't respond. One of the key verses of the book, if not the key verse, is found in chapter 44, verse 28, where it seems to me the purpose of the, this book is being set forth, and it simply says this, that all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live, that all of them shall know whose word will stand. Mine, God says, or theirs. And in a sense, that sums up the whole battle between what we might say is the word and will of God and the words and will of the people. Because over and over again, Jeremiah will proclaim God's word as a prophet and the people will refuse to hear that word. In fact, at times, they will prefer by their own testimony the smooth words of other prophets in that particular day and time. And it wasn't until later, after they had been exiled from Jerusalem, in other words, all of this word came to pass, that they realized Jeremiah was right. His words were true, that his words came from God. And every generation is faced with that same crisis. Every generation of the church, will we hear and obey God's word? Paul warned Timothy, didn't he? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. At the end of the day, I hope that you know this, that the only word that will prevail in the end is the word of the Lord. And all, as chapter 44, verse 28 says, all will come to know whose word will stand. Mine or theirs, God says, and we know that it is God's word. That's an important word for us today. I want you to notice some of what Jeremiah's call teaches us about the word of God. First, I want you to notice that it is a relentless word. It is a relentless word. We have in verses one through three a brief prologue that reveals several facts, including Jeremiah's family and the place where he lived, but also in, uh, about the times in which he wrote. And that's what I think is most significant for us. Dale Davis, in his commentary on Jeremiah, summarizes the times well. First, God's word came in religious times. In religious times, verse two, the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. You can read about Josiah's reign in 2 Kings chapter 21 through 23, he was one of King David's greatest successor. He was a king who called the people back to God. He reformed Israel's worship. He renewed the covenant that they had with, with Yahweh. But, but when you read Jeremiah chapter three, verse 10, it seems that this revival at best was short-lived and superficial as we read Judah 
God says, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. God's word came in religious times, just like that one. Secondly, God's word came in hostile times. Again, verse 3, it also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Jehoiakim uh, was hostile to God's word. He didn't mind getting rid of God's prophets either, and he did. He put many of them to death. In Jeremiah chapter 36, there's a story, a a scroll that Baruch had been uh, transcribing of Jeremiah's dictation. Uh, and, And it was brought and it was read to King Jehoiakim. It was a warning to the nation about judgment that was becoming because of their sin. And as the scroll is being read, you can read it in Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah takes his knife and he cuts pieces paragraph by paragraph of that scroll and he tosses it into the fire. That's what he thought of God's word. But you know, God's word is relentless. It just keeps coming and keeps coming it comes in religious times it comes in hostile times third it came in nervous times again verse 3 it came also until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah the son of Josiah king of Judah now you can read about Zedekiah in 2nd Kings chapter 24 but he was a he was a weak and pathetic king at best. He was the kind of fellow that would get up every morning and he would uh, check the polls and ratings to see where he was at uh, in, in life. He had no convictions whatsoever. He was always up, he, uh, or always up and down here and there. But note this, God's word came in those times too. Fourth, it came in disastrous times. This is the end of verse 3. It came until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. This was a disaster of national uh, implications. 587 B.C. will note that but the Babylonians overtook Jerusalem. They burned the, the temple down. They destroyed the walls. And they carted off God's people into exile. In verse 2, it says the word of the Lord came. In verse 3, the verb literally is it kept on coming. The word. It, it came during Josiah's reign in superficial religious and shallow religious times. It came during the hardened indifference of Jehoiakim. It came in times of compromise during King Hezekiah. And it came in days of national disasters. It didn't matter the times. The word of God kept coming. It is relentless. And can I remind you, this is both a kindness and a judgment of God that his word would keep coming like this? God is kind in that he does not leave us, his people, without guidance, without direction, without vision, even in the most difficult times, even in times of hostility when people were rejecting God's word, even in days when his own people, the church, are more, seem to be more preoccupied with, with graphics and gimmicks and programs and pragmatism than they are the word, where there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite for God's word. God's word keeps on coming no one gets out from under it 
No one escapes it. You may try to avoid it. You may run from it. You may set your mind. You may mock it in your own individual life. But hear this, God's Word is not going away. It's relentless. Secondly, it's a reassuring word to those who receive it. And I think that's the message of verses 4 through 9. Notice verse 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Notice God's word came to Jeremiah individually, but verse 5, it was also a word to the nations. Jeremiah was to be a prophet of God, a, a mouthpiece of God, if you will, a spokesman for God to the nations. And if that's not astounding enough, God tells him, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you for this very purpose. The word knowing that he uses there in verse 5 is an intimate knowing. God knew Jeremiah intimately, personally, before he was even conceived, before God formed him in the womb. Apparently, as we read this, a fetus is a person in God's eyes, being formed in the womb by him. Long before Jeremiah was born, God chose him and consecrated him for ministry. Surprisingly, verse 6, Jeremiah raises an objection to this call. Then he said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. This is one of the unique features, by the way, in Jeremiah as you read it. It's filled with dialogues like this. Sometimes it's Jeremiah arguing with the people and the people arguing back. Sometimes it's God accusing the people and then the people questioning God. Sometimes Jeremiah argues with God. Sometimes God rebukes him, other times God encourages him. And all of these conversations that you find constitute the word of God for us. Wright notes this, Jeremiah is not a robot or a mere dictaphone for God. He was an inexperienced youth who naturally shrank back from what he was hearing. He was probably in his late teens when the word of God came to him to be a prophet to the nations. And just like others in the Bible, he questions this. Do you ever wonder why God works this way? Um, why he seems to choose such fragile, weak, uh, unqualified people for his service like this? We've been talking on Wednesday nights for the better part of a year about this. Why did God choose uh, an idol worshiper who could not have children and, and use him to create a people for himself, speaking of Abraham. Uh, but there are other examples. Why, why did God choose uh, an 80-year-old man with a speech problem named Moses who, who had seemingly lost vision and direction for God's deliverance for his, his people? Why did God choose the, the youngest of eight sons who was not even important, important enough to be in the original audience when Samuel came to anoint uh, Israel's king? And, and, and many of these and others had questions just like Jeremiah. Lord, are you sure about this? Are you sure? And I think God gives the reason and assurance in verses 7 through 9. The Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all, 
For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. You know, the reason God chooses such, to use such fragile servants is so that all will know that the power is in the Lord and His Word. It's always been that way, church, always. Wilcock writes this, the more unpromising the human tool, the more we admire the divine workman, and I would add the divine Word as well. These are wonderfully reassuring words to Jeremiah. I formed you. I knew you. I appointed you while you were in the room. Don't be afraid, he tells them. I'm going to be with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. There's going to be more reassurance coming later because Jeremiah is going to need more reassurance. But this is a reassuring word for us too, church. God is not limited by human weakness. God himself and his word possesses everything that Jeremiah needs for this ministry. And frankly, everything that we need as a church. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, and we should say that the church of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do we really believe that? Do do we believe it, that in the Bible, God has given us everything that we need to do all necessary spiritual work for him? Or do we believe that we have to supplement the Bible with man-made techniques and devices? Much of the modern church believes that today. You don't have to look very hard to see it. You read most any church leadership book or church growth materials, and you'll see that the focus is evangelism is about attracting people with entertainment and and showmanship. That discipleship, that it really requires psychology and and, uh, psychiatry and self-help. Uh, to create disciples of Jesus Christ, or that discerning God's will, that His Word is not enough. It requires extra-biblical signs and personal revelations in our own hearts to know what to do. That if we want to impact our community, that the proclamation of God's Word is not enough. There needs to be something else. What a reminder. God told Jeremiah, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Church, he has given us his word. His word. This word is a reassuring word because it is an all-sufficient word. That the man of God, the church of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Third, this word is a ruling word. It's a ruling word. God said in verse 5, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But notice, he reiterates that again in verse 10 when he says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, this is another key word in Jeremiah, or key verse, because we see these themes coming up over and over again as you read Uh, as you read the prophet. To pluck up means to uproot, means to dig up a nation by its roots, turn them under. 
to break down is, is what it says, to tear something down like a standing structure, like a wall, knocking it down. To destroy, again, another word for knocking something down. To overthrow is to demolish something, to bring it to complete ruin, if you will. And then the final two verbs, to build and to plant, they talk about renewal, beginnings, growth out of that. Notice the negative has to come before the positive in that list. That there's judgment, and then it's followed by restoration. And Jeremiah's main emphasis is on the the judgment of God. Don't miss the main message of what he's saying here. God is sovereign over the nations. God is doing these things. God is the one who's doing all of those things. God, God is ruling the world, and God's word is a ruling word. Whatever God says about a nation or a kingdom, it will come to pass. That, that's what we see over and over again in Jeremiah. Uh, it, it's so countercultural, isn't it? It's countercultural to think this way. We don't naturally kind of think, we tend to think that what determines the, the prosperity or the downfall of a nation is, is economic or, or political or, or military or something like that. But the Bible proclaims that it is divine decree that determines whether a nation stands or falls. Our God rules this world. It's almost crazy that God tells Jeremiah, again, this young priest from an obscure village, uh, I have appointed you over nations and kingdoms. What in the world? He's a teenager. He's probably in his late teens. I'm going to put my words in your mouth, and whatever you say, Jeremiah, I will bring it about. This world is subject to the Word of God. It's remarkable. God is the one who is in charge of the beginnings and the endings in history. He uproots, he tears down, he plants and builds, and everything that goes forth from his mouth is of his decree and decision. And the question again is, will we hear this and believe it and align ourselves with his word or will we think we know better, we've got other uh, better ways of doing this and we'll thwart his word and we'll determine our own destiny? Can I tell you that is foolishness. Remember Jeremiah's message, 44, 28, and all the remnant of Judah shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. <laughs> it's a ruling word. It's a reassuring word. It's a relentless word. Finally, I want you to notice it's a radical word. It's a radical word. That's the message of verses 11 through 19. He closes here with uh, three object lessons, and, and uh, they're kind of pivotal, I think, for the whole book. The first is the almond tree in verses 11 and 12. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. That olive tree was often called the waking tree because it was the first to bloom in the spring. It was showing signs that, that spring is, is here. It was in a sense, you might say, watching for spring. And in fact, the Hebrew words almond and watching are very similar words. And, and, and the message is plain. God is watching over his word and he will bring it to pass. That's what he says. The second object lesson is 
uh, boiling pot, verses 13 through 16, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, they shall come. Everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah, the whole nation. And God says, I will declare my judgments against them. That is the nation of Judah for all their evil and forsaking me. They've made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. This bowling pot represents God's anger, his judgment that is about to be poured out on his own people. And it will come from this picture of this bowling pot that's north, from a nation from the north, which we will learn later is Babylon. And, And notice the language God says, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord. They shall come. They will come. God rules the nations. They will come, and they will be an instrument of God's judgment on His own people. The third object is an iron pillar. This is verses 17 through 19, and it's another reassuring word to Jeremiah. God tells him, but you, he says, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, God says, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. It's a great word of reassurance, isn't it? So God tells Jeremiah what the tree, the pot, and the pillar pillar mean. The word, he says, will blossom forth. My word will go forth. My judgment is going to be poured out, and you, my prophet, will stand firm, he says. I want you to focus on verse 16, though, which is the reason for all of this. I hope that you heard it. God says, I will declare my judgments against them for, here's the reason, all their evil in forsaking me. Speaking of his own people, they have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. What is it that would cause God to have this vision of this bowling pot that signifies his anger? What makes God white hot? with anger. This is what disturbs him. He says, my people, my own people have forsaken me to worship other gods. Well, what is central to God here is not, is not offerings and sacrifices and uh, religious activities. The, the problem is the very first commandment that he, ga- he gave them. You shall have no other gods beside me. They have done evil, forsaking God, he says, made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. And God is ready to pour out his judgment on them. 
Does that concern you this morning? It's doubtful that, that any of us have graven images that we've set up in our homes for idol worship. But is there any doubt that our idols are more present now than perhaps ever? Just more sophisticated and subtle? Could be anything. Maybe a fixation with the future. Maybe fixation uh, with your family. Maybe security and comfort. Maybe an addiction, sex, power, popularity, self-centeredness. The list could go on and on. And here's the point. We would be gravely mistaken to think that God is not moved to white-hot anger over our sins gravely mistaken and you see this is the problem we don't believe that anymore can't fathom that our world doesn't believe that and to be honest much of the modern church doesn't believe that either a bowling pot when's the last time you heard a sermon series on the bowling pot or a sermon for that matter What are you talking about? Isn't God? God is the God of love. We don't live in those days and times anymore. There's no judgment coming. What are you saying? There's no reckoning of our sins that's coming. You know, that's exactly what people in Jeremiah's day were saying too. You might say, well, what in the world does God want from us? Well, he's told us what he's wanted from us. Deuteronomy 6, among other places, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God is fanatical and radical in his word about our exclusive devotion to him. You don't make a confession of faith like the Lord, the Lord our God is one, the Lord is one, without backing that up with your life. There are demands that come with such faith. There are demands that come with our faith. No other gods. Radical demands. All your heart. Everything you have, total obedience to my word. And that's what God not only wants from you and me, but it's what he requires of you and me. Oh, but you say, that's just the Old Testament. Why why are we looking at it? I wouldn't say that if I were you. You know, because to make such a foolish statement like that is actually to run yourself into a corner that you're not going to be very pleased with. For example, do you remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38? He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
We could translate that another way. You shall have no other gods before me. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's radical, isn't it? How in the world could Jeremiah preach such a radical message? How could Jesus stand before people and say such things, demanding that to have supreme allegiance and affection first place in your life? Who does he think that he is? Well, we know who he is. He's God, right? The same God of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And the same God whose word continues to come to us today in our times. It's relentless. You can't escape this. It's not going away. His word will stand. It's a reassuring word for those who will hear and heed that word. Make no mistake, it is a ruling word. And it is a radical word that demands a response from us. How are you responding to his word in your life today? What would he have you do in response to that word? Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for Jeremiah, though many parts of this, Lord, bring us conviction. And we pray for your help in this. We're thankful today that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. And that this great burden that we have that Jesus carried it, he paid it all on the cross, that those who will humble themselves under the word, under him, confessing him as Lord, putting their faith and trust in him as Savior, that he will save. So Lord, our first response of those who know you is to praise you and worship you today and to give ourselves in love and devotion to you. Perhaps there's some here today, Lord, that are veering from your word deliberately. Oh, Lord, this is a mercy that this has come to us today. May they in repentance turn from their sins and look to Jesus. We pray especially for those that may be listening to this that do not know you. Lord, that there is coming a day that it is appointed for every man to die once and after that, the judgment. Only in Christ will there be refuge. So we pray for those who don't know you today that they might hear this word and believe it and respond in repentance and faith and be saved. And so we give this time to you. Wherever you lead us, Lord, help us to go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. 
We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.